Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 7, verses 13 through 29. You can find that in your pew Bibles on page 1506. So Matthew 7, verse 13, reading to the end of the chapter. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every tree, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the Lord. In this series that we're doing, we also have uh, the Heidelberg Catechism sitting uh, kind of in the background, and sometimes it'll, it'll move closer to the surface. And so I, I want to... Uh, have us read two of the Heidelberg Catechism question and answers relating to the Lord's Prayer this morning. I'll read the question if you would read the bold uh, response. What does the second petition mean? What does the third petition mean? Amen. Uh-huh. 
like the fact that the catechism written 450 years ago even uses the phrase backtalk. <laughs> Teach us to pray. That's the series we're in for this Lenten season, the time between Ash Wednesday, which was the February 14, all the way through March 31, which is the Saturday before Easter. And this season, historically in the church, is a time of training people how to be disciples. So a lot of people who had been learning about what it meant to follow Jesus Christ during this season in particular went into a season of fasting and preparing their hearts to make a public commitment to Jesus Christ. In the early church, this season was the culmination often of three years of intense discipleship before someone would get up and stand in front of God's people and say, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in Him my sins are forgiven. And then they would be baptized on Easter morning. And so this year, as we enter into this season, we're, we're stepping into one of the basic pieces of the Christian faith. It's one of those central teaching points of, of our faith, and it, it comes from the disciples who themselves, as they were walking with Jesus, hand in hand, face to face, day in and day out, said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I love the fact, as I said last week, that, that people who saw Jesus, who watched Him, who saw Him coming and going, noticed something about Him and realized they didn't know how to pray like Jesus prayed. And they said, we need to learn this. Teach us how to do this. And so Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer. And the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a, a teaching document as well, to help people who are young in the faith learn the faith. So it doesn't matter if you're, you're four years old or if you're 95 years old. The Catechism is designed as a, a teaching tool to help us grow in our discipleship, to help us grow as followers of Jesus Christ. And inside the Heidelberg Catechism, the Lord's Prayer, and this is really important for us to keep remembering each week as we talk about this, the Lord's Prayer is put in the section of gratitude, of how do we respond to the grace of Jesus Christ. So this whole section of the Lord's Prayer and the teaching that happens inside the Lord's Prayer is all assuming and operating under the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's saying, because God has forgiven us in His Son, Jesus Christ, how then shall we live? How do we respond with joy and thankfulness and gratitude? So rather than the Lord's Prayer being something somber, the Lord's Prayer is something that's supposed to be a joyful overflow of our hearts. Our Daddy in heaven. Ah, we love you. Thank you. It's kind of this joyful response, this, this excited response. And this part, too, that we're going to get into today, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is meant to be a joyful place. In fact, if we listen to Jesus' own words, John chapter 10, he's describing to his disciples and the people who are listening to him, the uh, part of why he's come. And he said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. 
Actually, the word behind it is abundantly overflowing. You might have this abundantly overflowing life. And if we take that as Jesus' posture towards us, his desire is not that we would encounter these commands and these rules as this heavy weight on us that we somehow have to manage ourselves and kind of that old image of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's that we might enter into a fullness of life. And Jesus is saying, the full life that I'm calling you into looks like this. And in fact, kingdom, and Jesus talking about kingdom, is one of the most frequent words used in the Gospels. Gospel of Matthew, it's like 30 or 40 sometimes that it it talks about kingdom. And Mark and Luke as well keep coming back to kingdom. John comes back to kingdom. This idea of God's kingdom. And most of the time when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he does it as a metaphor. The kingdom of God is like. He's trying to give us descriptions of this full life that he's inviting us into. As we enter into these things today and we hear these things today, we're invited to receive them as an invitation into a full life rather than as a heavy command that weighs us down. Out of the section that Joel read, and I had him read this this longer section at the end, it is the culmination of the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount begins with all these blessed R's, This whole sense of Jesus saying, if you want the full life, this is what it looks like. It's meek. It's mild. It's peace-seeking. It's loving and hungering after righteousness. It's, It's serving others. He describes this good life that he's inviting us into in ways that don't fit with the world's patterns. And when you come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's coming to this point, and this is one of those culminating verses in there. This is basically all the stuff you've heard me doing about describing this good life. It's not just for you to go, oh, that's good. That's nice. It's to be put into practice. This section talks about false prophets and says you're going to know the false prophets by their fruit the good and the evil, you're going to recognize by the fruit of their lives. And he talks about learning to follow, walk in the narrow way, and and it all comes back to this, are we going to take the teachings of Jesus, this invitation into the good, abundant life, and are we going to put them into practice? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. James, one of the apostles, James listens to this. And and James, the brother of Jesus, listens to this. And so you get the the letter to James later on. And and James is talking about the same idea. And he says, don't just listen to the word. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Put the word of God into practice. If you're like me, you've grown up in a community where you hear God's word. Week in, week out. You may have gone to a Christian school, not just for elementary school, but even for middle school and high school and university. You've been immersed in communities that talk about God's word. 
We hear it. We know it. Some of us sit down at dinner and we open up the Bible to read the Bible and we hear God's Word. And that is an important part of our rhythms as a community. To be a people who listen to God's Word. But listening is only part of the story. Listening is only part of the good life. It describes the good life for us. But there's an invitation in that word to step into the good life, to put it into practice. So we might say, so how do we do that? How do we put it into practice? What does it mean to put God's kingdom into practice? This is where I find the catechism's teaching on these two things, these two petitions put together is really helpful for us. This is the first part, which we read just a moment ago. And I want to walk through it step by step because it's, it's getting us into a posture of prayer. And I find it interesting that that whole first part, if you read that, that question and answer, it's really a prayer. Rule us by your word and spirit in such a way. We're, we're offering this prayer out to God. Rule us by your word and spirit. We desire this kingdom to come. And and instead of saying, okay, I'm going to put my work clothes on and I'm going to go make this kingdom come and I'm going to build this kingdom, our first posture is to say, Lord, it's your kingdom. We desire for your kingdom to come and for you to do this. And so there develops in us to see this abundant life coming a recognition from the beginning it's not something that we can make happen all on our own. We can't make the kingdom come on our own efforts. It is utterly dependent on what God is doing. And so this prayer develops, and there's four parts to this prayer that's in here. The first part is this. Rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Man, that's a gut check. It really is. It may not sound like it, but it is a gut check because so often in the church, we want God's kingdom to come somewhere else. We want other people's lives to change. We want other people who are obvious sinners to us to have a conversion experience. It's like that colleague at work who's just a pain, who's annoying. Now, I'm not referring to anybody at work at church here. Okay? No worries, Rachel and Janice. It is that sense, though, that the, the, we get into those places where it's easy to point at somebody else, somebody else who annoys us, somebody else who doesn't do the things the way we like them done, somebody else who has a different political persuasion than us, somebody else who views the world around us differently, somebody else who likes different music than us and even, and they play that music a little loud. Any siblings recognize that? In your house, the music gets played by your sibling and you're like, I hate that music. And you want to turn it off. We have a tendency to want everybody else to change. And the first part of this prayer for God's kingdom to come is change me. Change me, God. By your word and your spirit, change me. In a few moments, we're going to come to this table. And as we do, part of, part of receiving that bread and that cup is a posture of saying, Lord, as I take this bread and cup, as I remember your death and resurrection, I desire that my life would be transformed. 
the first part of our vision statement here as, as a church. Transformed by the gospel. Transformed by that good news of Jesus Christ. We desire to be transformed. And our kingdom, your kingdom come, praying that prayer, your kingdom come, is at first a posture that God's kingdom would come in our lives and that we would be transformed. The second part, preserve your church and make it grow. You know the crazy thing is? God took a whole bunch of sinners, put them together in this congregation, and says, I want my church to grow. You bunch of sinners who are broken and don't have it all together, I want to do something amazing in you. People talk today, they use a phrase, spiritual but not religious. And it reflects an idea that somehow I can be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ and not be involved with any other Christians. I don't have to be part of the church. I don't have to come to church. I don't have to come to worship. I don't have to be involved in any way. I can just get my spiritual fill on my own and I'm good to go. And this part of the prayer of your kingdom come is recognizing that God is not just interested in individual hearts. He is interested in transforming the world. And the way God has chosen to do that is by putting a bunch of forgiven sinners together and saying, I desire that through my church, my bumbling, fumbling people, that I will make something new in the world. And so when we pray, we pray not, Lord, I'm so sick of your church, it never does things right. We pray, Lord, I want your church to flourish. Because as your church flourishes, and as your people flourish, your kingdom will come on this earth. As you do stuff, not just in me, but in us as a people, you will change the world and your kingdom will become more and more evident. So when we hear about other churches struggling or we feel struggles in our own context, the invitation of your kingdom come is to pray for the healing and for the growth and the flourishing of God's people. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. In other words, keep doing the work you started on that cross with Jesus. You went to the gates of hell for us. This weekend, we did a a retreat with seven of the high school youth here to talk about profession of faith and what does it mean to profess our faith. And as we were going through the Apostles' Creed, one of the youth talked about the descending into hell. Jesus actually descended into hell. He went into that space where there's separation from God the Father, and he dwelt there on our behalf to undo every force that the devil has to throw against us. And part of saying, your kingdom come, is, Lord, keep fighting against the devil. Keep putting the devil in check and at bay until you have destroyed all of the devil's work. We in our kind of staid and calm reformed communities don't often pray that boldly. But when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying that the devil's kingdom would fall apart. That God would destroy the work of the devil in our lives, in the lives of of the church, and in the lives of the world around us. 
Make everything new and undo every part of the curse, Lord. Every place that the devil has left its footprint in our lives and in the lives of the people around us and in the lives of this whole creation of yours, wipe those, those footprints and those fingerprints clean. Clean up your world, Lord. Eliminate the work of the devil. And this, keep doing it, Lord. We know what you did on that cross through your Son is sufficient for our salvation. And we know from your Son that he has promised to be at work even now and all the way until that day he makes everything new. When there's no more death or crying or pain and the sea is no more, that source of chaos is no more. And the curse is completely undone. The prayer is not just for today and for my life. For my kids' life and my grandkids' life and the kids who will come after until your kingdom comes in its fullness. Lord, I long it not just so I'll have a comfortable life, but I long for this kingdom to come until the whole world is wrapped up, the whole universe is wrapped up in the fullness of that abundant life that you said you desire for us. Your kingdom come shorthand for these things we would be transformed individually, that our community would be transformed, that our world would be transformed and the devil would be pushed out of it and that God would do this until that day he makes everything new N.T. Wright commenting on this little phrase of your kingdom come says we are praying as Jesus was praying and acting for the redemption of the world for the radical defeat and uprooting of evil, and for heaven and earth to be married at last, for God to be all in all. And if we pray this way, we must, of course, be prepared to live this way. There's a beautiful scene where, where Jesus is with his disciples, and he says, look at the fields around you. They're white for harvest. And, and then he says, but the workers... Workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more workers into the harvest field. And most of our passages, most of, most of the English translations put a nice paragraph break there. And they put this nice little subtitle in so we don't keep reading. But the very next verse is, and Jesus sent them out. They are the answer to the prayer that Jesus calls them to pray. We are called to pray for God's kingdom to come and trust that God is going to be at work to make that kingdom come. But even as we pray that, we are beckoned by God and sent by God to enter in as the part of that kingdom coming. And the next part of the catechism gets after that. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven means help us and all people to reject our own wills and to obey your will without any backtalk. Your will alone is good. Help us, one and all, to carry out the work we are called to do as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. You know what gets me about this? It's one and all. When I was growing up, we would have missionaries come to our church. Anybody have that? Missionaries came from some exotic country overseas and you did a special offering and there was a special luncheon afterwards to sit with the missionaries and, and to hear and to inspire you to go be a missionary for God somewhere else. 
And if you weren't willing to go somewhere else, at least to put a few extra dollars in the offering plate. Because mission was somewhere else. Missionaries, yes. Yes. Like Pat Gordon. Yep. Pat Gordon, who was a member of our church for a very long time, lived and, and did that missionary work all over the world. And we are, but what we're recognizing and what the catechism calls us to pay attention to is that this missionary call is not just for a few select people somewhere else around the world. It's for each one of us, one and all, to carry out the work we've been called to. Each one of us has a place in this mission of God's kingdom coming. To become a people who by our very lives, by the way we live our lives together, by the schedules on our calendars, and not just by our wallets, not just by coming here on Sunday morning, but the very schedules of our calendars reflect that we are participating and longing for the coming of God's kingdom. Romans 12.1 which kind of echoes the whole thing we're doing here of in view of God's mercy. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, as an as a act of gratitude because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross and because he was raised from the dead, because he's now ascended on high, how shall we live? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So if someone says, how do Christians worship? Yeah, this is part of it. But this is a small sliver of our 168 hours a week. Most of our worship is done outside of these walls. It's in the way we live our lives day in and day out. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. How are we living as living sacrifices in God's kingdom? We have a core value here at the church. One of the things that, that kind of drives our decisions and our conversations as council and as ministry teams and committees in the church. And this core value, we're, we're going to walk through it for just a moment and help us see some of glimpses of what this abundant life that God's calling us into can look like. The church is a sign and foretaste of the kingdom of God for all people to see. It's who we are. It's like God's taken a signpost and put it on the corner of Charlton and Hess and said, this is my people. The people who gather here, this is, this is what my kingdom can look like. Following Christ's example, we demonstrate hospitality by, and there's three parts. The first is welcoming and unfolding those who seek a place to belong. God's kingdom is one of this incredible embrace. I was reading in my, my own devotions about the, the Jairus, who is the uh, synagogue leader, whose daughter was dying, and he came to find Jesus, and he said, Jesus, come. If you come, you can save my daughter. And on the way there, this, this elderly woman comes up to him and touches Jesus' cloak. And Jesus turns around, who touched me? And he does this incredible welcome of this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, who's gone to all sorts of people who have promised to cure her, and the text said, and it only made her worse. She only suffered more at the hands of the people who were supposed to heal her. And she's there suffering, and here now being publicly called out, she had to be trembling, going, now what? And instead of a rejection, Jesus wraps his arms and says, Daughter, loved one, you're healed. 
go in the freedom of God's grace to you. And then he continues on and he goes to Jairus' daughter still, even though everybody said she's dead. And the text says they laughed at Jesus because he was still going there to heal her. And Jesus raises her from the dead. It's this incredible arm-wide embrace that Jesus models for us. And that kingdom invites us to be a people who embrace others, who create a welcoming space. I want to name two things specifically in our congregation that we're connected to that help us do that. One is our friendship ministry. Monday nights, I don't know if you've come out here on Monday nights, but there is an incredible, incredible experience of God's kingdom that happens in this building on Monday nights. People who, for the most part, have been isolated by our world. People with, uh, with cognitive impairments. They might not even know how to speak or to communicate very well with other people. And they gather here in this building to hear and experience the love of God through other people. And that friendship that develops becomes one not just of us giving to them, but of us experiencing the body of Christ together with them. Some of the most profound theologians over the last century, theologians and philosophers, Jean Vanier and Henry Nouwen, both talk about how their theology and their life was completely transformed by becoming immersed within a community of people with cognitive impairments. Stepping in and learning to walk with people, welcome people who are not, not acceptable by the world around us. And indwell. It's not something we run as a church. We've got a history with that, that community of even it starting with people who are part of our community. But it is part of our, our neighborhood here and part of the broader city here. And it's an opportunity for us to come alongside people who are struggling, especially with all sorts of mental health concerns and challenges and who are entangled in poverty as well and provide housing and dignity for them. And so it's a ministry that, that many of us have volunteered with, that many of us have financially supported, that many of us continue to look for ways that we can partner with. It's part of us, not just in this building, but in the broader community saying, your kingdom come, Lord, by the way we welcome and enfold others. The second part, of servant, uh, how we do this servant hospitality is extending ourselves as neighbors within our communities. That neighbor imagery is, is throughout Scripture, and it's talked about becoming a, a community that we seek the well-being of others. And we don't justify ourselves by saying, well, they're not like me, so I don't need to love them. But we say, because Christ loved me, a sinner who was his enemy, I therefore spend myself to love my neighbors, to be a neighbor like Christ in our community. There's a couple tangible ways, and I, I think prominent in our day and age, is working with immigrants and refugees. This city is being changed by the volume of immigrants who are coming into the city. And we as God's people have an incredible opportunity to meet other people from other parts of the world and to see how God's image is reflected in them. To walk alongside them, to learn from them, to provide them space and freedom from the experiences of the devil's tyranny that they have encountered elsewhere in the world. And they're coming here and we get to show them the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And as we do, we see and experience and encounter a fullness of God's kingdom that will blow our minds. 
one of the largest groups over the last two decades of immigrants to Canada has actually been Filipino Christians. We often talk about the Syrian refugees right now, but quite honestly, one of the largest group has been Filipino Christians who are coming in. People, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are fleeing persecution in other countries. Two of the churches in town that I've had a privilege of interacting with have been sponsoring Syrian families, and those families come from a Christian Orthodox background, a Syrian Orthodox background. We are encountering the body of Christ even as we walk with refugees and immigrants. And there's other agencies in our town and in our circles that we interact with that provide us these opportunities like Micah House and like World Renew. Opportunities where people with expertise and who have been training in how do we walk with people from other cultures can, can help us learn how to walk with people from other cultures as well. It's an opportunity as we get involved with those communities for us together to experience the fullness and abundant life of God's coming kingdom here and now. And the last part, pursuing justice in our city. Over the last four years now, we've been involved with CAP Debt Center, Christians Against Poverty. We've run some money courses. Uh, Jan and now Rachel have been serving as directors of that to help coordinate that. And we're walking alongside people who have been trapped in poverty in their own debts and seeing them set free from that debt and experiencing a freedom that they had not before. And they're encountering God's grace through the people of this congregation. And as we do, we see that God just doesn't care about our souls. God cares about our lives here and now. And as we do that, we're also stepping into collaboration with other churches in town. And our True City Partnership is one of those ways that we begin to work for justice in the city alongside other Christians. And to begin to, to come alongside others and say, God's kingdom can come here and now. And these are incredible opportunities for us as God's people to experience the abundant life of God's coming kingdom here and now. Who knew all of that was tied up in one little prayer? The abundant life, a life that we're invited to, that we might encounter Jesus Christ more and more, that we might see Christ alive in us and in, this, in our congregation and in the world around us. That not only does God say, I'm going to save you from your sins forever so that you might live with me forever, he says that forever starts now. And my kingdom isn't just something that's down the road, in a far-off heaven, something that happens here and now, in your own building, in your own lives, in your own calendars. God's kingdom breaking in. The goal of all this is not just us, but that all people might flourish together through God's grace. That's the kingdom coming. God's kingdom coming here and now, in response to God's grace in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible, abundant life that you put in front of us. That you invite us to spend ourselves with you. And as we spend ourselves to experience a fullness of your kingdom that we so often don't imagine possible. 
We are sinners saved by grace, by your Son, Jesus Christ, and that salvation is bigger and broader than we imagined. Usher us into this new life. Keep putting opportunities in front of us to embrace your coming kingdom, to participate in it, and as we do, to see the flourishing of your world, your abundant life, become a reality here and now. Lord, we know we can't do this on our own. We know, in fact, that it is you at work and that you are simply inviting us to come along with you, to enjoy and participate in what you are already at work doing. So we pray that you would take our lives, Lord, and that you would receive them as a a willing offering to you, that our very lives might be caught up in the coming of your kingdom and the doing of your will here and now. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. As we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to sing a few verses of the song, Take My Life and Let It Be. And at the end of the service, we're going to come back to that song and sing a few of the other verses. I think there's like seven verses to the song. So we're